0: Alright, time for kids to come up front. We're gonna be front and center again here today. So you can sit in the chairs here or on the floor, whatever's comfortable. So those of you who are here, come on forward. Yep, we're gonna be lighting more candles today. So come on up. All right. Good to see everyone. Okay, so last week we began the Advent season, right? And Advent is when we anticipate Jesus' coming or his arrival, right? We're waiting for Jesus to come. And so we let, lit the first candle last week, so we'll light that. Who remembers what this one's called? Good, the expectation candle, because the people expected that a Savior would come, right? They believed that a Savior was coming. So today we're going to light the second candle. And the second candle is called the prophecy candle. Everyone say prophecy candle. prophecy candle. Yeah, prophecy candle. Now, who knows what the word prophecy means? Anybody? Ooh. Ezra, what do you think? Yeah, prophet is telling something. Exactly right. So prophecy is where God's Word is fore- foretelling that something will come, it will happen. So it's a telling of something that God will do according to His Word. And so the people of God believed that a Savior was coming. They expected it because it had been told to them. It had been told to them. There were many places throughout the Old Testament where these prophecies, these recordings of God's Word about what would happen, are written down. And so many of these prophecies told of where the Savior would be born, where he would come from. They told of how the Savior would come, and they told of when he would come. And so there's lots of prophecies, God's word telling about the Savior coming. One of those is in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of, in Israel. And so this verse tells us that a ruler, a king, was going to be coming, and he was, he was going to be coming from the city of Bethlehem. Now, do you know who was born in Bethlehem? Yeah, good job. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, right? So it was a prophecy telling us of the Savior Jesus who was to come. So that's one example of prophecy about the coming Savior. And there were lots, lots more throughout the Old Testament that would tell about the coming Savior. So what was our first candle called? Expectation candle. Expectation candle, yeah, because they expected the people of God believed that a Savior was coming. And our second candle today was called? Prophecy candle because God had told that the Savior was going to be coming, right? And so the people were then able to believe it. All right? So thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat.
1: You have a Bible, please open it with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll be focusing a lot on verse 35, but we'll read 26 to 38. So Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, and if you need a Bible, there's some under the seats in front of you. One of our issues is that we are flesh and blood, we have eyes, we taste, we touch, Uh, and so things in the unseen realm, in the supernatural realm, are difficult for us. So one of the failings of Mankind has always been kind of an anti-supernatural. Uh, we doubt things that we can't test and repeat, and you know, figure out in a test tube or something. Yet here we're meeting a virgin uh, to whom an angel is speaking, telling her that she's going to become pregnant without the aid of a man by the power of God. The overshadowing of the Holy Spirit and then that the one born in her is going to be fully God and fully man. <laughs>
0: isn't that
1: amazing That's something. And so we have to receive this by faith. Now faith isn't like contrasted with truth or with logic or sense. But we can't verify this scientifically. We can verify it historically. We have eyewitnesses who know these things. And so what are you going to do with this? This is the revelation of our Savior, the eternal God. So I hope you can receive it by faith and with awe and joy and delight and even fear. Isn't this a wonderful thing? I hope it has your attention. Let me read these verses. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. One of the things with Luke is Luke was a historian. He was a medical doctor who Uh, had some backing in history. He was writing this probably for the Christians in and around Rome. And he is very uh, detailed. He gives names and lots of names because these people are still alive and you go check with them. And he came to her and said, Greetings, this is the angel speaking, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greediness might be. And the angel said to her, Will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, your word is wonderful. Teach our souls to delight and to keep it. Please unfold your word because it is light. Impart understanding to us simpletons. Teach us to open our mouths with faith and long for your commandments, and so be gracious to us. We love your name. Redeem us from the oppression of man, that we may obey your word. Make your face now to shine upon us, your servants, and teach us your statutes. May we shed streams of tears, because the world hates your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue in this Advent series, where we're looking at these names revealed in Scripture of the Son of God. We see here now that the angel tells Mary that the child born and within her will be named Jesus. In verse thirty-one, and in Matthew, it says that he is to be given that name for he'll save his people from their sins. And then in verse thirty-five, we see that uh, he is the Son of God, and that's what we're focusing on this morning: the Son of God. Mary is told that the child to be conceived within her, though she's a virgin, by the Holy Spirit is God's son. Uh, one of the curious questions that may plague you is why do we celebrate Christmas on the 25th? Uh, that's somewhat relevant to this text. It really doesn't have much to do with the sermon, but I thought it might be of interest to you because some Christians do have issues of conscience uh, with celebrating something that the rumor is has just been taken from paganism. The pagans had a a, a feast day, a celebration day on December 25th, which in, in the calendar in that time was the winter solstice, and it was a pagan feast of worship to the sun. Have you heard that? Yeah? Sol Invictus, the birth of the unconquered sun. And so, the 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 thinking is that Christians uh stole that day and made it a Christian holiday, so some Christians struggle with that uh, it 's kind of the same thing that you struggle with as far as wearing nikes because it 's made by uh, Chinese sweathouses kind of stuff now if you 're going to live in this world, all you can do is use use things and eat things and and live with things that are made in ungodly ways. Uh, unfortunately, it really isn't historically true at all that the Christians took this from the pagans. Uh, in fact, the, the the Roman celebration known as Sol Invictus, or, the, or the, the Festival of the Unconquered Sun, wasn't instituted until 276 AD. So the Emperor Aurelian... Um, instituted it almost 300 years after the birth of Christ. Uh, And it's, we can't verify this, but it's pretty likely that he did it as an attempt to give a pagan alternative to the Christians who by that time widely believed that Jesus was born on December 25th. How do we know that? Well, in verse 36 of Luke 1, you note know that we get this detail that Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin, was in her sixth month of pregnancy. Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 9, uh, we're in the, in the account where an angel comes to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, who's a priest. He's of the division of Abijah in verse 5. In verse 9, we're told that he was uh, doing his priestly duty chosen by Lot. Now, the priests divided up the work of the priesthood uh, according to the calendar. And so we almost know for certain when Zechariah's uh, service would have been in the temple. And so we can almost date for certain when Elizabeth would have been in her sixth month. So, uh, Zachariah's turn for the priestly service would have been around the autumn equinox, or at that time around September 25th. And so, if Elizabeth was six months pregnant at the conception of Jesus, that would put Jesus' conception around the spring equinox. And if you can do math and do nine months from the spring equinox, that gives you December 25th. That's why the Christians dated uh, Christmas or the celebration of Christ's birth around December 25th. Now, how many of you heard of the 12 days of Christmas? Uh, Do you know where that comes from? You're learning something this morning. I learned it this week. So in the West, the Christians dated uh, Jesus' birth to December 25th. In the East, there was a separation earlier in Christianity between the Eastern Christians and the Western Christians. There was two Roman, em- or two Roman capital cities, one in Constantinople. That became the Eastern uh, center of Christianity. And then Rome, of course, was the Western. The Easterns dated Christ's birth till uh, January 6th. And so 12 days December 25th to January 6th. Um, They couldn't agree on that. So all that to say, um, Christians aren't dumb. (laughs) They sincerely tried to work out the dating of Jesus' birth according to these dates given. Uh, And Now, don't bank your salvation on this. We, We don't know for certain. Uh, But the Roman calendar, the Julian calendar, has the winter equinox on December 25th, and that was the likely date Christians thought Jesus was born on. Now, does all that matter to your celebration of Jesus? I don't know. Maybe it helps some of you in conscience. But it's simply to say, Christians have always been very careful to worship Jesus. They, they, They want to know things about him. And even some of the colors and decorations and all of that um, are intended to communicate something to you about Christmas. Now, of all of the holidays that we celebrate, Christmas alone gets a season. Everything else gets a day. Christmas gets at least a month. And I know some of you, the common joke is we celebrate it early and early. I think it's a great thing. Uh, What a delightful season. So, we need Christ, don't we? One of the truths, as I was thinking about the text we're in, of course, this is about Mary. I mean, it's not mainly about Mary, but we see Mary, this young, teenage woman who is told this incredible news. I don't know, I'm not a woman, obviously, but you guys, you ladies can probably. Put yourself in her shoes when you first find out you're pregnant. Um, I, being with my own wife, it, it's a lot of joy, but it's also like life is over. <laughs> Everything's changed. I am going to give my existence to the raising of this child. And and now you have this additional reality of as a virgin, and all that comes with it. And of course, nobody knows a child better than their mother. Mandy, when she was pregnant, as I'm sure is true of you, you know, could tell what was going on in there. Could tell if there was a problem. Got used to different rhythms when they were awake and when they were asleep or he or she was awake or asleep. And then of course when they're born, you know your child intimately. You can be in a room with a bunch of kids and pick out your child's cry uh, among all the other children. So mothers know their children best. And yet here, Mary couldn't know the, the truth of who her child is. She had to have it revealed to her from heaven. She couldn't know She couldn't know that he was going to be the eternal king reigning on David's throne. She couldn't know that he was God. She couldn't know that he was the son of God. She had to have an angel sent to her to tell her in her own language these things. And so we see in this again the reality of our weakness the distinction between God and man from the infinite to the finite and even more from the holy to the sinful, we cannot know the truth of Christ unless heaven reveals it to us. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who would know him more intimately than any other, the one who would birth him, the one who would hold him first, the one who would nurse him, the one who would burp him couldn't know this. She needed it explained to her. So this is, of course, rather applicable if you are yet to believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent to be the Savior of sinners. Sinners. You need God. You need to humble yourself before God and plead with him. Mary, after she received this revelation, sings a song in verses 46 to 56. And one of the things she sings is that God scatters the proud and the thoughts of his heart. He brings down the mighty. He exalts the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, but the rich he sends away. This is, again, the reality that if we do not humble ourselves and receive God's revelation, then we will have nothing. And so will you, please, do you think so highly of yourself that you reject revelation from God? Are your thoughts so high You will not humble yourself under the very word of God. And you ask, well, how do you know it's God's word? Well, how how do you know it's not? There's been billions of people from over thousands of years and all places on earth who have humbled themselves and accepted this, and you won't. So it does take humility. Look, look, if you would, back in Matthew 11. We're going to go here a couple of times, so you might want to keep your finger there. In Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30, Jesus says something very similar. In Matthew 11:25, 25, Jesus said, I declare to you, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children yes father for this was your gracious will all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him we are utterly dependent on god's grace look at that in verse 26 god's grace the the center of the grace of God is that he would reveal his son to you. Grace is gift. The greatest gift is Christ. And the greatest gift to you is Christ revealed by the heavenly father to you. Jesus continues on in that passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that, if we connect these two and we think about Mary, the God is very kind and saying, just just know this one thing, my son. You don't have to know everything, but you got to know this one thing. Isn't that a relief of burden? You don't have to know all of the intricacies of government. You don't have to know what's going on in the headquarters of Moderna or Pfizer. You don't have to know all the things that you want to know. You have to know this one thing. Jesus is the savior of sinners. And so the yoke that is easy, the burden that is light, is just Christ. This is the one thing given to Mary. No other details. Wouldn't you be very curious if an angel told you that you were going to be pregnant though you're a virgin? Wouldn't you want to know? They don't tell her. They just tell her who Jesus is. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. So this is the greatest of treasures. This is the one thing we need. This is the light and easy burden. And yet, we'll have need to humble ourselves. We'll need to let go of our pride and our self-sufficiency and just come to God. And so will you seek him? Will you tomorrow, when something goes south, like, Go lock yourself in the bathroom and get on your knees and ask God for Christ. And so who is this Christ? That's the center of this passage. We need Christ. Look again at the revelation of who Christ is. Don't miss that word revelation. This is a revealing of something you cannot know apart from God. It is a giving of this truth. We've been looking in Acts at miracles, and this is the greatest miracle ever worked on earth, a virgin with child. And that the virgin with child would bear a son who is fully God and fully man. We see his humanity in that he is conceived within a woman, an ordinary woman. He was going to be born a regular boy. He'd have a name, he'd have feet, he'd have a mouth, he'd have a brain, he'd have veins with blood and He'd need to breathe and he'd need to eat and he'd need to use the bathroom. He was a a person, a guy. And we see his divinity and that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit that he would be called the Son of the Most High in verse 32, that he would reign forever. And that he, in verse 35, unlike his mother, unlike all other humanity, would be holy. And he would be and is the son of God. Now that the Bible uses that phrase, Son of God, if you were to do a search on it, it does use that phrase sometime in relation to finite beings, created beings. In Job one six it uses it regarding angels. And second Samuel seven fourteen, which we We'll read pretty soon our Bible reading program. It uses it of kings in Luke three eight or three thirty eight. It's applied to Adam in Romans eight fourteen and sixteen. It's applied to Christian believers, but it's almost always without the word the. And sometimes the plural sons of God, plural sons of God. But Scripture reserves this phrase "son of God" and is used of Jesus in a far greater and even more unique way. Jesus here in verse 35 isn't just a son of God. He's the son of God. The son of God. The only, the unique. In Romans 8.3, Jesus is God's own son. In John 8.18, Jesus has God the Father as his own father. Jesus in John twenty seventeen says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to yours, to my God and to yours. There's a distinguishing. There's a uniqueness. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the only one that God the Father comes to his baptism and says audibly, This is is my beloved son. Jesus prays in John 17, asking the Father to glorify the Son. The Father has given all authority over all things to give eternal life to whom the Father has given him. The Son of God says that he has accomplished the work the Father has given him, and now ask the Father, listen to this, Father, glorify your Son again in your presence with the glory that I had from all eternity. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He has always been the son of God. At the conception in Mary, he didn't suddenly become God's son. He had eternally already been that. Can you get that? What's happening here in our text in this conception is Jesus is adding to his eternal divinity, humanity. He's not coming into being here. He has eternally been God's son and now God's son is becoming a son of man. In our statement of faith we say that we believe that Jesus Christ became a true and complete man without ceasing to be true and complete God. Without ceasing to be what he was. In the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, we read that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that thus two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. And then there's three terms borrowed from the Chalcedon Creed three terms that help us understand how to think about this. Without Jesus' divinity transformed or converted into humanity, so Jesus' divinity wasn't somehow changed into humanity or impacted, Jesus' two distinct natures in one person weren't mixed Weren't like all blended up inside of them. They were two distinct natures. Neither were they confused. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Truly God and truly man in one person. Now, uh, the TNTers are learning about this right now in the hypostatic union. Quick, everybody look at Claire. Claire is teaching them the hypostatic union got to look again, right? They're they're supposed to look at her every time I use the word hypostatic union. So when I use the word hypostatic union, you're supposed to look at Claire. What is the hypostatic union? It's just simply this. There is one person in Jesus and two natures, God and man. He is the full God. Everything that God is, he is. And he is full man. Everything that you and I are, he is. These two natures in him are all mixed up. Adding humanity to his divinity didn't change or lessen his divinity. He's not half man and half God. He's not two people appearing as one. He's one regular person, fully God and fully man. I, <laughs> of course, what does that mean? I don't know. How do you describe that? I don't know. It's true. He is in himself from his conception, God and man. He is now and forever God and man. Why did he take on a body? Why did the eternal, all glorious Son of God? Submit to being born of a woman. (laughs) Even more, born to a carpenter who had, you know, calloused, thick hands. He couldn't use a cell phone well. Why did he submit to be born into this world of sin and misery and death? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. God, when The timing was full sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you know the significance of that phrasing? Under the law, born of a woman, under the law. Okay, kids, little kids, young kids, Liza, how old are you? Six? When you're that age and younger, your parents tell you everything. You, you don't really have a choice in anything. Your parents are very detailed and control every aspect of your life. Pretty much. Why? Because you're not old enough yet for that responsibility. You don't know. You don't know what to eat. You don't know how to eat it. You don't know when to get, go to bed or when to wake up. You don't know what to wear. You don't know not to put your hand on a hot stove. And so your, de- your life is very detailed, specifically controlled by your parents. That's what the law was like in the Old Testament, wasn't it? How many laws are there in the Old Testament? Hundreds and, and in great detail over every area of life, what you can eat, what you can't eat, when you should eat, and when you shouldn't eat it. When you can work, you can't work. What you should give for this punishment for this sin and what for that sin. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws in great detail, managing the life of God's people as if they're young children. Why? Why? because they were yet very young children. And it's the law not only ma- micromanage your life, but the law didn't come with the power of God to keep it. The law didn't come with God's power to keep it. It, it only came with condemnation for breaking it. So you have these very detailed, explicit laws for all of your life and only the condemnation for breaking it. And so you're under God's wrath because you break it all the time because your heart is wicked, deceitful. And when Christ came, he came under that law. And he submitted to it, every part of it. Even the ceremonial stuff, he was circumcised on the right day. He was presented to the priests on the right day. When his mom told him to do something, he always said, yes, mom. And he always did it with a glad heart. He ate what he should eat, and he refused to eat what he shouldn't eat. And then, because he lived... Without the condemnation of the law, but with a conscience and clean before God, He could give His bodies, His body in death, for you who were still under the condemnation of the law, so that the law could be fulfilled for you, and you could have Christ's righteousness and forgiveness of all your sins, so that you are no longer under that law. You are only under the one law, and what is that? To love Christ. That's it. To love Christ. And so when we look at what the angel revealed to Mary, and we consider again Matthew eleven, when Jesus Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. What is more wearisome and burdensome than the knowledge of your sin before a holy God? And your lack of ability to keep it in yourself? And you're consistent failure. And now you're freed from that condemnation and you're told to do one thing, not hundreds. One thing. Love Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength just means with sincerity. Of course, you'll never do it perfectly. Isn't that a relief? You can eat ham and love Jesus. Isn't that a relief? One thing. Just love Christ. Seek Christ. When Jesus was on earth, he was constantly healing people, wasn't he? Blind people cried out to him. Paralytics were carried to him. People afflicted with leprosy begged him. Isn't that you? Blind and crippled and full of leprosy in our souls. And what do we need? We just need Jesus. That's it. I read this morning in a prayer book, Produce in me self-despair that will make Jesus precious to me. It's not a good prayer. Produce in me despair regarding me and myself and my strength and my goodness that Jesus will be precious to me. We see that kind of prayer being answered in Mary in verse 38. This is the end. Mary said, behold, I am the slave, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's the response of faith to this. Just life-altering news given to her. I, one of the problems we have is that we're just way too curious. We just want to know too much. And Mary is so godly and simple That she refuses the questions, and simply says to her God and to our God, "I'm your slave. This is enough. Do as you wish." And that's sweet. This is a picture of a Christian. This is if you want to know what a Christian is. This is a Christian. Do, do as you want with me, God. I'm your slave. Do, do, do what you want. I'm your slave. Now, I haven't messed with you yet, so I'm going to do it when I close. It's easy to say that, isn't it? Now say that to your husband. There's your test. If I'm submitting to Jesus, I should submit to my Husband, right? That's the test, isn't it? We can't say we love God and hate God's children. We can can say, I love you, God, but do we love you in detail? Children, you can say all you want to God. I am your servant. Do as you want. Everybody can say that, right? Will you say that to your dad and mom? Mom, whatever you want me to do, I'm doing it. Because that's what Christians do, because Jesus is our Savior and Lord. Men, this is what you're supposed to say at work. Or to the government officials God has placed over you. This kind of attitude... Because no man should be trusted with authority until he's submissive. So, Mary is a great picture of submission. Anyone can say that they submit to Jesus. But do we submit to those to whom Christ tells us to submit to? Wouldn't it be the most wonderful Christmas present to those that God has put over you to have that kind of attitude? Wouldn't that be the best? But God is very gracious to us in Christ and that he forgives all of our stubbornness. And you are stubborn, aren't you? Aren't you stubborn? And isn't God the God of stubborn people because of Christ? Let's pray. Father, help us with this we thank you that you have given us your son and that the one thing we need is him revealed from heaven, loving him, seeking him, that we might find rest for our weary and burdened souls. God, we thank you for Mary's example. Teach it to us in our bones. Help us to learn to be more humble and submissive and forgive us where we fail. But God, mostly, help us to look to Your Son and to love Him above all else. In Jesus' name, Amen. Christmas, Christ, Mass, Christ, Mass, the Mass, the Mass, celebration of Mass. That term Mass isn't a Roman Catholic term. It's simply from Latin. Um, which was short for dismiss, dismass. They, they just came to call the entire worship service this Latin term because the end of the worship service is always a dismissal with a charge to go and serve the Lord. And, uh, and so the Christian practice has always been to dismiss, dismass, God's people with a charge in some specific way that applied the word to their lives. And so they began to name this time of year after that. It's the Christ Mass. It's the dismissed with Christ to serve him. And so uh, the, the word Christmas is a good one. Now, I've said before, and our world is nuts. And so we can't call it Christmas anymore. We have to call it the holidays. Uh, and they can't get away from it because that means holy day. Uh, and so be, be dismissed with the love of Christ, would you? Enjoy it. Uh, we are nothing but servants and slaves of Christ, and that's enough, isn't it? What a delight. We get to be slaves. better be a doorkeeper in the house of God than anywhere else. And so be dismissed with that. The Lord bless you and keep you. Sorry, I lost my page. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you. Have a great weekend, Lord, and I love you.